0: some questions that you don't want the answer to be probably for. You know, and will I go to heaven, that's, that's one of those. We, um, our family had a chance to spend uh, the week with the Troys and the, the Casey's up in northern Minnesota. We got to go up north, and, and we, you can go up to Gull Lake uh, several ways. There's the quick way, and then there's the scenic way. And we took the quick way, our family did on the way up, and then we took the scenic way on the way back. The scenic way takes you by Garrison. Minnesota. Who's been through Garrison? All right, Garrison with the big fish, the whole deal. Well, uh, between Garrison and Shoreview, uh, along the way on 169, there, I was looking off to the right, and there was this homemade billboard. It was a white billboard with black letters, and the question on there was, Where will you spend eternity? Anyone else seen that billboard before? A couple of us? All right, you seen it? Um, so, So there's that question where will you spend eternity? And that is a question that you don't want to answer with, well, maybe, probably, that's a, that's a question you want to have an answer for. But it's a question that sometimes is really hard to, to answer. In fact, I used to hate that question. I was a youth pastor for about 16 years, and we'd take to, teenagers a lot of times to these events, these big conferences, and it seemed like every second or third conference, the speaker would say something like this. If you were to die tonight, are you 100% certain that you'll spend eternity with God in heaven? If so, raise your hand. I hated that. Because here I brought all these teenagers and I'm like, 100%? You know? I hated that question. I hated that question. Well, uh, when, we de- when we decided we were going to do this series... If you're just joining us, we've been in a four four week series on, on questions about the afterlife, these secrets that God reveals through the Scripture. I thought we've gotta spend at least one week wrestling with that question, if for no other reason, because I want to dig into the Bible and see what it really says. Is this a question that we can answer with assurance? Is this a question that we can respond and say, yeah? I'm going to be spending eternity with God in heaven. Or is that a prideful thing or is that a whatever thing, a mystery thing? So we're going, to, we're going to do that. We're going to be wrestling with that. And this was a paradigm shifter for me. In fact, yesterday, last night, Laura was saying, so how you feel about tomorrow? And I said, I, I just hope that I'm able to articulate the things that I think that God was showing me. You ever had that where you feel like you know something and then you have a hard time getting it out? So let's pray that God helps with that. Father, we do. We pray that you'll help with that. Um, Father, you have given your people, assuring words throughout history. And Lord, many of us need those assuring words. So Father, we pray that, that you would speak today, Lord, that you, that you would not be limited to words that I say or even um, words that have been translated into English in our Bibles. Father, we pray instead that your living word, your spirit of truth would, would come and, and permeate this place. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord, we pray that you would then speak. Help us to, uh, to respond as we see in the scripture. Speak for your servants are listening. Lord, we pray that you would enable that to happen. So Lord, protect us from um, distractions. Protect us from the evil one. And instead, Lord, help us to, to hear from you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, before we dive into what I think is very, very helpful, what ended up being paradigm shifting for me, I want to start with three questions that I think will perpetually lead you to insecurity. Because the reason I want to start with these is is these are often the kinds of questions that we use as a starting point, but they're inherently flawed. Um, Here are three questions. There's a place to write this in your notes if if you want. I'm calling them Three Foundations of Sand, because I don't think you can build a case for assurance based on these verses. The first question is, am I good enough? The second question is, was my decision for Christ sincere? And the third is, will it be revealed that I am one of the elect? Now these are three different questions representing three different theological frameworks. That's why I put all three of them up here. They represent three very different ways of thinking and I want to address all three. But all three of them, what they have in common is I think they're so subjective. That's an interesting sense. I think they're so subjective. <laughs> I think they're so subjective that they're not going to provide assurance for you. So let's start with this first question. Am I good enough? Am I good enough? That question's got all kinds of problems. And one of the biggest problems with the question, am I good enough? Well, first, let me back up a little bit. The question, am I good enough, it reflects the bias that that one reflects is a religious bias. It reflects a religious bias because what you're basically asking is, is my religion right enough? Have I prayed the right prayers? Am I doing the right things? Am I saying no to what I should say no to? Am I saying yes to what I should say yes to? Am I doing the religion right? That's basically what you're asking with this question. And if you go to the Bible... And you try to answer this question, what's the answer? Are you good enough? No. That question's inherently flawed. If you're, if you're thinking, am I good enough to, to one day spend eternity with God in heaven? The answer is no. No wonder that question's going to lead to insecurity. Because you'll go to the Bible and you'll find there's things that you should be doing that you're not doing. There's thoughts that you shouldn't be having that you've got. There's all of these things that are part of your life. That, that make it so that you're not good enough so that is not if you're looking for assurance don't go there that, that's not one of the places you want to go for assurance alright let's look at the second question the second question was my decision for Christ sincere that reflects whether you know it or not that, that reflects a theological bias um, a theological bias towards what's called decision theology that that you believe that, that those who go to heaven are those who made a decision for Christ. Now, I'm not trying to say that there isn't biblical merit to that. I'm just saying that that's what that question represents. So that question if, would have follow-up questions like this. Was I sincere at summer camp? Maybe not the first summer. What about the second summer? Or at right, that third summer, I really cried hard. So that was the one. Was, that, was it sincere enough? Did that decision count? Or, or when Billy Graham came to town, you know, and I came forward, did... Did I really mean it? You know, or, or, or that time when I said, said yes to God or, or made a commitment to him. Was that decision for Christ sincere? Well, the challenge there, the big challenge is, how do you measure sincerity? And if you keep pointing back to that time in the past when you made that decision, how can you know whether or not you were, you were sincere? So in a few minutes, we're going to reframe that to what I believe is a more biblical question, one that the Bible answers that isn't as subjective. So the first two questions, I, I think they need to be reframed, and we're going to do that, as is the, same, the case for question number three. Will it be revealed that I'm one of the elect? That question represents um, a bias towards what's called Reformed theology, where folks look to the Scriptures, and, and as, they, as they explore what the Bible says, you see some strong language. Strong language about God's sovereignty strong language that we translate with words like predestination and election. And there are large numbers of Christians rightfully so that say you can't dismiss that. And so if it is that God somehow predetermines or or chooses in advance of our first breath who's going to be in heaven, how will do I know that I'm one of them? Do I have to wait until judgment day to find out if I'm one of the chosen? Well, I don't think that's a question that's going to lead to much security because how, you won't know until that day. So we're also going to reframe that question in a, what I believe is a more biblical manner. Okay, so that's, these are three questions that I think are foundations of sand. Am I good enough? Was my decision for Christ sincere? And will it be revealed that I'm one of the elect? Let's now reframe these from a more biblical framework starting with the first one. Starting with the first one. Okay, so on the screen you see the first question was, was am I good enough? The answer to that is what? Again, It's no. And here's the thing about that. That's actually a very assuring thing. It is an assuring thing that we're not putting our trust in our own goodness because we're not all that good. Here's a passage. Can we put up on the screens Romans 5? This is one of several places that addresses this in the scriptures. Look at this, what it says. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's actually an assuring thing. Because our salvation doesn't rest on how good we are. The Bible actually assures us, hey, I know. God knows. God knows that we needed a rescuer. We couldn't rescue ourselves. That's why I would reframe that first question. The first question that just leads to insecurity, am I good enough? The answer is no. Here's a different question. Um, instead of asking that, here's a question to ask. Am I placing my trust in God's salvation? Not in what I do, but what God has done. Not in, in my self-righteousness, but in God's sacrifice on my behalf. Do you see the shift there? That's a big, big shift. And how much more assuring is it that we can look to what God has already done versus what, what we do or don't do? But here's, here's the problem with just stopping there. The problem with just stopping there is we still have that word trust. And how do we know if we've done that? How do we know if we've placed our trust? The Bible directs us here. It directs us to put our trust not in our own merit but in what God has done. But how do we know if we've trusted? Does that just bring us back to bad question number two of was my decision sincere? Well, no, it doesn't have to. Let's, let's reframe that. I'd encourage you to write this in your notes. Instead of focusing on a decision that you made in the past, I think the Bible points us towards our decision-making in the now. That if we're going to look for some assurance of whether or not our faith is sincere, we don't look to the past. We look at now. Is our decision-making reflecting that we did make a sincere decision for Christ? Now, just so you know, I didn't pull this out of a hat, let's open up our Bibles together. If you brought your Bible, let's open up to 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, we'll continue to put the passages up on the screen, uh, so don't worry about that. Um, But if you, uh, and oh, and if you don't have a Bible at home at all, we'd love to send you home with one free today. We have a stack of those, I almost forgot, we have a stack of those right there um, by the uh, uh, on the table on your way out. Well, the reason I want us to actually open this if you have your Bibles because we're going to look here in First John. We're going to spend a little bit of time here starting with this passage. This is in 1 John, chapter 5, uh, verse 13. This comes from John, the disciple of Jesus, the one who referred to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. Do with that with what you will. But he says this. He writes this at the end. This is uh, coming in the last chapter of his his book, okay? So this is towards the end. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the Son of God, that you may what? Know that you have eternal life. Now, when I heard people quote this to me, they would always focus on the word know. See, the Bible says you can know, but they usually would point you then back to a decision that you made in the past. Well, if you prayed the prayer, then you can know you have eternal life. Is that what he's saying? It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I write what? I write these things that you may know. The emphasis isn't just on this note. the emphasis is also on these things. Hey, this is towards the end of First John. I write these things, these things that I've been writing, I write these things that you may know, that you have eternal life. So let's look at some of the, these things. We don't have time to look at all of them. It's filled with lots of these things. Let's look at one of them. Um, one that's extremely counterintuitive, but it actually leads to, to assurance. This is out of First John chapter one, I'm um, starting with verse eight. First John chapter one, verse eight. So these things start right away. They start right at the beginning of, of 1 John. Look what he says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What is, this is one of the first ones that, that John points out is the, these things. Do you want to know you have assurance? Admit you're a sinner. I can do that. I can do that. Now again, that might seem, that might seem crazy and counterintuitive, but think of, think of what that reflects. That says a lot. The fact that you would confess your sins before God says a lot. It says first and foremost that you acknowledge that there is sin that there's a lot of stuff that's opinion, but that you recognize, you know what? There are standards that come from God, that all truth is not relative, all right and wrong is not absolute, but there are some things that are just wrong because God says they're wrong. There are some things that are right because God says they're right. And that reflects a lot right there. It reflects the fact that the Spirit of God is in you helping you understand that there is a right and wrong. And what's also interesting about this, well, the the devil could know it's right and wrong, but usually if it's the devil, he won't point you towards confessing it. He'll point you towards shame and basically hiding it and trying to cover it up rather than going to God. So if you have a sense of there's right and wrong and I know that I've sinned against God, if you are, are feeling like I need to go to God and confess these sins, That's an assuring sign. That's an assuring thing. Do you see how it's not just as subjective as something that happened in the past and you have to gauge whether it's sincere or not. You can look and say, okay, am I confessing? A a very concrete thing. Am I confessing before God my sins? Now, look at where the thought flows. A spirit-inspired thought, it goes right from that thought right into this. John continues, he says, By this we know that we've come to know him. Do you have a real faith? Do you have a sincere faith? Here's another self-assessment John provides. By this we know that we've come to know him. If we keep his what? Commandments. Listen to the strength of the language here. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a what? Liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, meaning Jesus walked, Walk the same way Jesus walked. Now there's a reason why so many Hollywood movies have the bad guy be a, a corrupt person who's supposed to do right, whether it's a corrupt politician, corrupt policeman, or a corrupt clergy person. Because there's something inherently that that we know that your your words and your actions should line up. That if you stand for something righteous, you should be living righteously. Now, we we know because of this coming after what we just read that it's not preaching that we have to be perfect. That those who are going to inherit eternal life, they're not the perfect because we just read. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, right? So do you see how this isn't preaching perfection? But what it is saying is if... You claim to be in Christ. If you claim that you've sincerely committed your life to him, you should be walking as Jesus walked. You should be intent at keeping the commandments of God. If there's something within you that says, that's a desire I have. Although I stumble and I fall along the way, that's something I desire to do. That is an assuring sign. All right, let's let's continue on. Here's another, another one of the the little self-assessments that we see in 1 John. And this one, oh, in the suburbs, we need this. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, yet closes their heart against them, how does God's love abide in them? Little children. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, before we talk about what this is saying, let's talk about what it's not saying. This is not saying that the Bible preaches throw money at every cause that comes your way. The Bible does not teach that. In fact, specifically using some of the same language here of brothers and sisters, meaning those in God's family, what does the Scripture say? If you see a a brother or sister who will not work, they shall not eat. So the Bible does not support entitlement mentality. The Bible does not support just throwing money at at causes like that. But look at the strength of what it is saying. It is saying, especially among the brothers and sisters in Christ, if you see those folks and they have needs and you have means and you are closing your heart to that, how can the love of God be in you? that's one of the reasons why we continue here, especially in the suburbs, that we continue time and time again to direct our attention to the needs of the poor. Because how can the love of God be in us if we don't do that? In fact, one of our challenges with the Compassion Justice Team this year that we're going to really start working on um, is how do we bring every person in our church into a real relationship with someone else? a real mutually transformational relationship with an elf. I love the fact that I was sitting there with my kids when the slides were going, and they're like, there's Marcella, there's Edith, there's Lavi," Because those are their friends. And it's not, here's some money, be grateful. It's, these are my friends. And we're learning things from them, and they're learning things from us, and we're working together. We need that. We need that. Every one of us. I love what either it was Reed or or Tim who said, especially if you don't feel a desire to do this, you need to do this. Whether it's in Juarez or Haiti or Shoreview or the city, to get those connections with real people, how can the love of God be in us if that's not there? How can the love of God be in us? That's strong language. Strong, strong language. All right, well, let's take a look at this other one from 1 John 4. There, there are so many of the, these things. Just read the book. It's filled with them, these self-assessments. But here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. 1 John chapter 4, verse 13 says this. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. That's how we know. Because left to our own, we're not going to change the way God would have us change. Left to our own, we're not going to self-select the commandments unless they somehow benefit us consciously. We're not going to self-select heart change. We're not going to self-select sacrificial giving. And so how do we know that we're in Christ? If we begin to see evidence of his spirit within us. And the thing about the spirit is the Bible says we can resist it. We can resist the Holy Spirit. And so are you resisting that? The Holy Spirit, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to continue to, the technical term is sanctify us. One of the things that the Holy Spirit does is continue. The sanctifying means to continue to make holy and make holy and make holy. Are you allowing that to happen in your life? Are you allowing God to say, okay, right now I don't have a compassion for the poor, but I'm not going to resist that anymore. I'm going to purposely engage the needs of the poor. And God, I'm going to ask that you give me a heart for that because I can't just manufacture that. I ask that you give me a heart and you direct me in that. When it comes to commandment keeping, we're not going to just self-select on our own, but we start to walk that path of obedience and we say, Holy Spirit, I'm not going to resist you. And as I walk that path of obedience, Lord, I pray that you would open my eyes. Help me to see why I'm doing this. Sometimes the answer is because I said so. Sometimes the answer is because this is better. But are you resisting the Holy Spirit? Are you saying, okay, I, I'll, I'll do this. I'll walk this way. When it comes to confession, you might be thinking, well, why do I need to do that? If you already know God, everything, why do I need to do that? Do it. Are you resisting or are you confessing? And throughout the scriptures, in 1 John, the rest of the scriptures, you'll continue to run across these things. Are you resisting the Holy Spirit or are you partnering it? The more you find yourself partnering with the Holy Spirit, the more the Bible provides that assurance, then your faith is sincere. Your faith is sincere. And here's the beautiful thing about faith. The Bible says if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. And some of you, that's your starting point, the mustard seed, you know? You might go, well, I don't have this great faith where I'm, I'm willing to, like, Ryan and Melissa, go to Haiti and move there for two years. Or I don't have faith, like, Reed and Tim and, and Emily to go into a war zone, you know? I don't have faith to, to do these kind of things. Start with the faith of the mustard seed. That's evidence of God's work within you. And then let God grow the mustard seed as you stop resisting. That's where God directs us. Now, we're going to shift gears here. So far, the language we've been talking about reflects the decision theology camp. The idea of we make a decision for God, we make a commitment to God. What we haven't talked about yet is this other camp of Christianity, which is the Reformed camp, which which talks about, it's not what I do, but what God has already done. Here's just a quick passage, 2 Timothy chapter 1. That we left out at the nine o'clock service, but we live and learn on that. All right, Second um, Timothy chapter one. here's just one example of many that speak to god 's sovereignty. Look at this: God saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we 've done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus when before the beginning of time. What do you do with that? but now has been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is one of many passages that speaks to God is at work far more than we ever give him credit for, that even our orientation towards him is a gift that comes from God himself, so there are many people who say, well, it's not about me choosing God, it's about whether or not God chooses me. Okay, well, let's go there and let's take a look now at, at a way to rephrase um, a question that, that, that isn't helpful. Instead of saying, am I among the elect, and will I, you know, woohoo hoo balloons on one day, or, or is, it, is it better to say this, am I making my election sure? Well, I think three is much better because that comes straight out of the scriptures. Take a look at this, 2 Peter, 2 Peter, Chapter 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to what? Make your calling and election sure. Instead of pointing us towards, well, you're going to find out. You might be one of the chosen. Instead of pointing us there, the Bible points us here and says, make your calling and election sure. And how do we do that? We read the verse in context. Here's the context. Listen to this. And as we're reading through this, Think how similar this is to what we just saw in 1 John. Even though 1 John is, seems to be addressing more decision theology, and this is evidently de- de- um, addressing election and reform theology, look at how the answer is the same. Look at this. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that they are blind, having forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, listen to these words of assurance. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the what? Eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what what I found so interesting was not only the fact that there are parallels, that there are parallels when when you're looking at the Bible through the lens of, okay, what must I do to be saved? you know, that kind of a thing, you're looking through that lens of decision theology, it points you towards the now. I see the parallels there between, with the, the um, election language. It also points you to the now, so there's parallels there. There's not just parallels in what they say, there's also parallels in proximity because I never noticed this before, where does Second Peter fall in relation to First John? They're back to back. So even as the Holy Spirit inspired where these books are going to get placed, you got these things back to back. They're both pointing you to the same place. And I I, I comment on this frequently, that the Bible is brilliant. The Bible is brilliant. Because as people, so often we want what's called closure, right? We want to be able to go, how do I check the box? Just tell me what to do. Tell me the prayer to pray so that I get in. Tell me the action I need to take so that I can be sure. The Bible is brilliant. It doesn't point us to that because that would take us to religion. And you could do all this stuff without having a relationship with God. So instead of pointing us towards the checkbox, the Bible points us towards the relationship in the now. And think about how important that is. Think if we, in our relationships, did relationships like religion. You know? Think about that. Think how different it would be. Think about it like this. Um, you know, so many people, they, they think, well, am I a Christian? Well, did I ever make a decision for Christ? Well, that's kind of like saying, how's your marriage? Well, I said I do. You know? Guys are notorious for that, right? You know, it's the, the whole thing of, you know, wife saying, do you love me? And, well, of course I love you. I married you, didn't I? Is that what every woman wants to hear? No. They want to know that they're treasured and that, that they're valued and, and, and they want to see expressions of that rightfully so. So think what it would be like in a marriage if we always pointed towards a decision we made in the past. That doesn't provide security in the relationship. What provides security is what's, what's the now? <laughs> or think about with a friend. Do you point just towards the past of, yeah, think about that time we met. Are we friends? Well, yes, because we met back then and, in second grade, we were BFFs. Is that, is that what you do? No. Friendship, if friendship's going to work, it's an ongoing thing. It's not a box you check. It's an ongoing thing. Or parenting. You know, kid comes to the parent. Do you love me? Well, of course I do. I, I provided for you that first year of your life. What assurance is there in that kind of relationship? Do you see how the Bible is brilliant? Instead of pointing us towards checkboxes or a future hope, it points us towards the now. Not, did I confess my sins? Are you confessing your sins? Not, did you keep the commandments? Are you keeping the commandments? Not, did you once do something nice for the poor? Are you engaged in the needs of the poor? The Bible points us towards the relationship now. And that's where the assurance is found. The assurance is found as you begin to see the Holy Spirit at work in your life. And as you don't resist the Spirit, and a year later, you're not the person you were a year before. And a year after that, you're not the person you were a year before. Instead of the high point of your faith being confirmation or the high point of your faith being your baptism or the high point of your faith being camp, is God working in your life? That's where the assurance is found. Well, as the worship band comes up, let's, let's pray and let's seal what's been said and then let's respond to this great song. It's a song it's called Mighty to Save. It's a song that you can pray to God who is mighty to save. This is the same God who provides assurance to his people that he's mighty to save. So let's, let's pray as we, we prepare for, for that time. Let's pray. Father, in your Bible, you have proved yourself mighty to save. You have proved yourself mighty to save from circumstances in this world. You have stepped in so many times and delivered your people from from earthly bad things. Lord, you've also proven yourself mighty to save into all eternity. That if if you were able to to come and die for us while we're still sinners, what what wouldn't you do for us? So Father, for those who already have placed their trust in you, Lord, we pray that, that we could find greater assurance of your work in our lives as we yield ourselves to you. Lord, for those who've already made some sort of commitment or, or those who, who are already walking in you, Lord, we pray that you would help us through your spirit to be less resistant to what you're saying and trying to do in our lives, but instead we can continue to, to allow you to transform our minds and our hearts so that we could become more and more like you. And in doing so, we wouldn't have to question this relationship with you because we know it's there. Lord, we also pray for those who, who, who not, aren't there. Lord, I, I pray, we pray that even this day there could be a new sense of assurance. That even this day you could, you could compel them to confess their sins before you. To you and you alone. To confess their sins before you, acknowledging that you are a God who sets the rules, and they aren't. Lord, humble them. Lord, stab pride so that they could be open to that. And Lord, in that moment, meet them, and may your kindness lead to a repentance. Rather than a God's going to get me, may they see that this is for their good. And Lord, may, your, may they in that moment begin to, to, to get a greater glimpse, a grander glimpse of who you are and what their life could be as they surrender more and more of it to you. So Holy Spirit, enable that to happen. Enable them to, to confess their sins before you, to put their full trust in you, and then to be able to begin to walk that out. So Father, we, we pray for those who know you, for those that desire to know you now, that, that you will take this time and make it holy. Meet with us as we sing to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.